HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. Autumn is here. There's a crisp breeze in the air, the sound of bees buzzing happily amongst the trees of an apple orchard. The air is filled with the smell of apples, freshly fallen on the grass. The scent has just begun to turn from sweet to something bolder, a smell that hits the back of your throat with its acidity turned into a sweet, rotten funk. Up above, blush-tinged golden apples hang, almost ready to be picked. But not by me. My name is Hannah Forden, and I haven't eaten an apple in about a decade. The last time I sunk my teeth into one, my lips swelled up like a plastic surgery horror story, and an itching sensation spread from my tongue to the roof of my mouth and down my throat. Lucky for me, cooked and fermented apples are still on the menu. Cheers to that. While I'm by no means an expert on cider, through conversations with industry leaders and diehard cider advocates, I'm taking you with me to learn more about this distinctive beverage. Welcome to Hardcore, a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over the next six episodes, we are taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. We visited cider bars, labs, orchards, and even a summer camp to talk to experts in this growing industry. We'll bring you with us as we explore how the cider industry began and where it's heading. So cider has grown something like tenfold in the last 10 years. It's now close to a $1.5 billion industry. New York State has more cider producers than any other state in the country. There are about 850-ish in the country right now. The numbers keep increasing. More and more you'll find a cider, or maybe a few, on menus or at your local liquor store. But the beverage hasn't quite broken into the mainstream. And producers are still working to define how this drink fits into the wider market. So really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. It took until the 1970s for wine to get revitalized. 
Much like the revitalization of American wine and more recently the craft beer revolution, cider is gaining momentum as an American beverage. And in the midst of this evolution, we are taking a pause and bringing you with us to explore the different corners of the industry. From tasting and terroir. Because the Finger Lakes wine industry has acid-driven, austere, bright fruit. And I think the ciders that are coming from fruit grown in this region are kind of showcasing the same thing. To fermentation, farming, and food science. I very strongly feel that the future of the U.S. cider industry going forward is going to have to be based on new genetics, meaning um, we're going to need to come up with new apple varieties. And co-ferments, collaborations, and consumer habits. It only takes one bad experience to slag a whole category. And that's, you know, one of these challenges too, educating consumers that cider is not one thing. We'll start with history. First, my personal history. I don't know about you, but it wasn't until recently that I started drinking cider. Full disclosure, I chugged my fair share of Strongbow when I was studying abroad in London, but artisan-made cider was entirely unknown to me until about five years ago. I grew up in the Hudson Valley and was surrounded by apple orchards, but they mostly grew apples for eating. Now, let's go back even further. Cider has been a part of American history since the first waves of colonialism. European farmers first brought apples and apple trees, then later honeybees to pollinate this essential crop. Soon, apples were being grown on nearly every farm in the early colonies. And then this crazy guy from Pennsylvania, on a canoe piled high with seeds, brought apples to the western frontier. And the rest is history. Or is it a bit more complicated than that? Johnny Appleseed was a real person. His name was John Chapman. Um, and he did travel around uh, planting apples. Predominantly, my understanding is for hard cider. Though when we were, when I was a kid and I learned that story, I assumed it was eating apples. Like no one specified. I found out about the hard cider part. I think like when Botany of Desire was came out, everyone was like, oh, interesting. And then they were like, oh, what's cider? <laughs> That's Olivia Mackey. She hosts the podcast Redfield Radio and is the co-owner of Redfield Cider Bar and Bottle Shop in Oakland, California. We'll hear more from her later. But let's rewind a bit. If apple trees came to the U.S. on European ships, how did apples get to Europe? So we think of apples as what you see over here, and that's Malus domestica. It's actually a hybrid. It's a hybrid between Malus diversii, which is one of these species that um, is found in the what they call the fruit forests of Kazakhstan and, and nearby countries. And actually that apple, through human intervention, was hybridized along the Silk Road. So humans took that apple, and it was probably about golf ball to racquetball size, probably very acidic. Um, but pleasant enough, and there were probably some that they found in the, collect in the woods that they preserved and would grow, and they brought that into Europe. Greg Peck, aside from sharing a name with a certain dashingly handsome movie actor, 
is an assistant professor of horticulture at Cornell's College of Agriculture and Life Science in the School of Integrative Plant Science. And while doing so, apples can easily cross between different species. And so it crossed with the European crab apple, Malus sylvestris. So Malus sylvestris by Malus sylvestris are the two species that make up the majority of the genetics in the domesticated apple, which is a hybrid. Which is kind of cool. We don't really think about that too much, right? We just think, oh, it's an apple. But it's actually pretty fascinating. While apples brought over from Europe took root on this newly claimed continent, so did the slave trade. Here is Olivia Mackey. I think that there is a tendency and a tradition and a history of whitewashing Um, You know, where our food comes from, how we own the land that we live on and the land that we farm. Um, And especially in cider, there is a a tendency to really glorify the founding fathers, to talk a lot about American heritage um, in terms of hearkening back to like this time where everyone was like making cider and drinking it out of jugs and you know what I mean? and I just think that that's, um, that's not true. And I think it's a, it's a disservice to really the history of the country to just, just completely, you know, wash over slavery. Like, we can't, we can't do that. Like, our, our entire economic system, our entire agricultural system, our entire, you know, world and, and, and the United States was based off of slavery, In the spring of 2019, Olivia published an article in the quarterly publication Malice titled Whose Heritage? America's Cider in Black and White. It highlighted the role that enslaved peoples played in America's history and in the narrative we often hear about the founding fathers growing apples and drinking cider. Here's Olivia reading the opening of that essay. Jupiter Evans was born in 1743 on a Virginia plantation. We don't know too much about his life, and it was only speculated that his last name was Evans, like so many undocumented stories of slaves. Evans was born into enslavement by Thomas Jefferson's father. In fact, he was born the same year Thomas Jefferson was. Jefferson and Evans grew up together and played together as children. When Jefferson turned 21, he received Evans as a gift from his father. Evans traveled with and worked closely alongside Jefferson his entire life. Despite publicly saying slavery was an abomination, he kept around 600 enslaved people during his lifetime. We already know a lot about this founding father. And some of us know that Jefferson loved to drink wine, beer, and cider. Evans knew Jefferson intimately and had a few different roles in his household, including as his personal butler. One of those roles was being involved in cider making at Monticello, Jefferson's plantation, a task that is thought to have been reserved for someone trusted and of a high skill. In the cider industry, there's a marketing trend that idealizes this narrative that America's founding fathers drank and made cider, painting a picture of the drink as this down-home, truly American beverage. That trend fails to recognize the reality behind this history. Enslaved black men, women, and children were the ones growing the crops and making the cider, they were making the beer, and they were making the wine on the plantations owned by many of the founding fathers. Olivia is not just making a point about history here. Her argument pertains to the way that cider is talked about today, in 2019. The USACM, the United States Association of Cider Makers, created a lexicon of terms 
for producers to be able to talk about their products. And they broke it down into sort of two main segments. One is heritage and one is modern. In this cider dictionary of sorts, modern cider is defined by its use of culinary apples and is described according to its bright and refreshing taste, that is, low in tannins and high in acidity. Heritage ciders, on the other hand, use heirloom varieties of apples that result in higher tannins and a more complex flavor. And at Redfield, we don't use either of those terms. Mike and I have never wanted to or have intentionally avoided using the term heritage for the reasons we just talked about. Um, But we also don't really like the term modern either. Um, And I don't mean that as a dig at the USACM because I do think that creating shared language and definitions and giving consumers... Um, you know, the space to be able to understand how to talk about beverages is really important, but I don't think that categorizing cider in those two distinct ways is necessary. So if you come into Redfield, we just say cider. The use of the word heritage spans across the food and beverage world. As I tell this story, I'm sitting in the studio of Heritage Radio Network. At HRN, we use the word to talk about preserving stories about America's food movement featuring diverse voices from farms, newsrooms, breweries, restaurant kitchens, and far beyond. According to Wikipedia, when speaking about history, heritage refers to events or processes that have a special meaning in group memory. But words have a way of gaining power and meaning beyond their dictionary definitions. As cider reclaims its place in the American beverage landscape— it's important to reassess the language and narratives we might take for granted and build a more inclusive culinary world. I don't think that the word heritage is like inherently bad or evil. Like, no, it, it has a definition and it, it can and should be used. But it was more to spark a conversation around the power of words and thinking about that within the context of the communities that you're working in, right? Um, and if I have... POCs, people of color coming up to me and saying, you know, like that term's offensive to me. We have to dive into that. Like we got to talk about that because the cider industry is overwhelmingly white um, as a whole. And I can't imagine creating an inclusive space where we're having words like heritage that are really hurtful to people or painful to people being one of the, you know, top categories of cider. Like I just can't do that. By starting from the ground up, the new wave of cider makers in the U.S. has an opportunity to learn from its history and look towards a brighter future. At Redbird Orchard Cider in the Finger Lakes region of New York, acknowledging the legacy of slavery led its founders to redistribute their revenue. This is Redbird co-founder Deva Moss. Looking at um, recognition of where this land was before we were here and making that a part of sustainable economy is the idea of reparations, the idea of acknowledgement and, and of a shared wealth um, that really is the only way truly, I think, to move forward in any kind of sustainable way and a way of recognizing what's come before and how much you can learn from that. Um, part of what we're doing now at Redbird is a dollar for every bottle that leaves our cidery, be it to wholesale or retail, um, right now is being donated to Ganandagon and Soulfire Farm. Um, 
for the indefinite future. These organizations dedicate space to communities that have experienced vast land loss over the course of U.S. history. Ganandigan is a national historic landmark. Just like the land Redbird was founded on, Ganandigan was previously home to Native American nations. Yeah, well, I guess going way back, um, it was there were there, there were definitely peach orchards on Cayuga Lake that were Native American, early Native American farms, and I believe apples too. That's Eric Schott, Deva's husband and co-owner of Redbird. Today, Ganandigan is dedicated to educating others about their way of life and the contributions of Native American society to contemporary American culture. And Soulfire Farm is a working farm and activist organization committed to ending racism in the food system by hosting farming and trading series for people of color. The land holding used to be way more African Americans holding land in this country, and the amount of land loss is kind of insane just in the last uh, hundred years. Um, so they're kind of working to repair that. And I know the like word reparations, it doesn't. Uh, what is it? it doesn't like test very well. <laughs> there's, and so there's better ways to say it that that don't rise up people's blood pressure. But for us, it is super, super important. Um, we're unbelievably lucky to be here growing this fruit. And it's not because of our own work at all, as far as the majority of, of why. Um, and so I think economies really to be fully sustainable and uh, caring about the the climate and the culture need to kind of have that recognition. Um, and so this is our small way of paying our reparations. We'll be back with more Hardcore after the break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Hardcore. There are a myriad of ways cider makers today seek to engage with the past, whether through growing heirloom apple varieties or paying reparations. But in the 200-odd years between colonial times and now, what happened to American cider traditions? In the 17th and 18th centuries, cider was consumed by adults and children alike, although in a more diluted form. Water was unsafe for drinking, and apple trees were ubiquitous. 
Cider was even used to pay taxes in some rural areas. But as the Industrial Revolution came to a head in the 1800s, people began leaving their orchards behind for growing cities. And then came the temperance movement. Here is Professor Greg Peck during a tour of Cornell Orchards in Ithaca, New York. In the United States, um, cider was made commonly throughout um, from the colonial times up until prohibition in a lot of communities in the eastern United States. It was consumed by the farmer. It was sometimes used as a form of payment to the uh, workers. But there wasn't a large-scale distribution chain. Because most cider was made in people's homes, before prohibition, there's not a lot of data about what people were drinking. Sometimes you'll hear the story of how during prohibition, the feds went around with axes and they chopped down all the apple trees. And that's how come we don't have a cider industry in the U.S. until recently. It may have happened um, to some extent, but probably to a very small extent because um, all apples contain sugar. And that sugar can be converted into alcohol by yeast and turned into hard cider. And so we didn't really have varieties that were just for cider production. A lot of them were multi-use. They may have been used for making pies or uh, apples that could be stored for long periods of time. A lot of orchards survived because they were growing culinary apples, not just cider apples. But cider making and drinking became a rarity. But what really happened is that after Prohibition, we had a really big change in the demographics in the United States. We had a lot of immigration of Northern Europeans, uh, particularly Germans and Irish. What do they like to drink? <laughs> Everything. But I think the majority vote was beer. <laughs> and that's true. We also had a change in the demographics in the United States in that time after Prohibition, right? Uh, moving from a rural uh, a population to a very much so urbanized population. So beer was easy to control. It was easy to make in the cities. It was easy to store. Cider was not because it's made from a perishable item, apples. The localized nature of cider making made it impossible to sustain after Prohibition. And although cider flourished in other countries like England, France, and Spain, in America, if you said cider, it was safe to assume you were talking about the dark, unfiltered, non-alcoholic juice that you might find at a fall farmer's market next to the apple cider donuts. Hard cider was unfamiliar. Freaking apple picking and, like, fall and the stereotypes that come from that, I have to tell you. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. You get people from all these different places, and just the language of the fact that we still feel the need to call cider hard cider. Like, we don't call wine hard wine. Like, come on. It's... the <laughs> Hard grape juice, yeah. It's we're not. It's not hard beer. It's almost like a level of sophistication that gets taken away when you have to specify the difference between that and what you drank as a kid on your like kindergarten field trip to the pumpkin patch. That's Jordan Werner Berry. 
I met Jordan two years ago when I was just starting as an intern at HRN, and Jordan was finishing up a fellowship. Jordan is something like my cider fairy godmother. Before meeting her and getting to benefit from her knowledge of cider, my only experience with it had been very sweet, very not artisanal, and that I drank, frankly, just because it was cheaper than beer. Hanging out with Jordan, it was a totally different story. If I put a cup in your hand and say, try this, and you say, what is it? And I say, just drink it, to just drink it. I'm not going to poison you. I don't know how to do that. Um, it's it's just going to be cider, I'm, I promise you. It might be cider and grapes. It might be, you know, whatever. Um, but it's going to be, if you, even if you don't like it, it's going to be interesting. And that willingness and that openness to try things, I think those are the consumers that cider really needs to capture. And I'm not sure the best way to do that, but I think for me, it's by just making my friends drink it and making everyone I meet talk to me about cider. Following the tide of the slow food and locavore movements and many other factors, over the past decade, artisanal cider production and awareness has been seeing its first resurgence since the industry's near annihilation during Prohibition. People were like, what is cider? I have no idea. Oh, you mean the sweet stuff that we get in the market? Fast forward today, 2019, (laughs) we're almost 2020, a lot of people say, oh yeah, I've had a cider. Meet Rachel Fryer. She's a cider educator, and this year is organizing Cider Weeks all across New York State. (laughs) So at least now they've had cider, they kind of know what maybe a hard cider is, um, but they still are not wrapping their head around cider as a beverage in its own category, maybe. Thanks to advocates like Jordan and Rachel, cider is very much back on the menu. But there is still far to go before the industry as a whole is able to catch up with beer and wine. Here's Greg Peck again. Cider is about a $1.5 billion industry now. Wine is about a $35 billion industry. And beer is a $100 billion industry. So just to give you a little bit of the scale. Cider is still small fry compared to the beer and wine industries. But we can look towards the recent explosion of craft beer making and drinking to get a sense of where cider might be heading. On the next episode of Hardcore, we're traveling to the Finger Lakes region of New York to talk about taste of place. Terroir. Well, terroir is the soil the microclimate, the agricultural practices, and I think the people not only involved in the production of the cider, but the people that are kind of in the region that are basically consuming it. Because in a way, they're sort of dictating what we do, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think terroir is an influence of all those things. Does, does the place affect the quality of the product? Yes. That's coming next time on Hardcore. Hardcore is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Hannah Forden, with help from Kat Johnson. This episode was engineered by Matt Patterson. To read Olivia Mackey's full essay in Issue 5 of Malice, go to M-A-L-U-S-Z-I-N-E dot com. You can check out Olivia's podcast, Redfield Radio, on your favorite podcast app to learn even more about cider. 
Special thanks to Kevin Barry and Jordan Werner Barry. Hardcore is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.